0: My name is Dan Nichols and this is an MACP podcast. Today we're going to be discussing red flags with Laura Finnegane with a particular focus on metastatic bone disease. Laura is a consultant physiotherapist working in Sussex. Firstly, Laura, thank you for coming in today. Before we get into um, more detail around red flags, can you begin by telling listeners how you developed your personal interest in this area?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Dan. It's it's a real pleasure to be here, and particularly to talk about something I feel really passionate about. And I think um, the reason I am so passionate or, or have a, have an interest in this area is really down to one particular patient. Probably ten years ago, I saw a patient in clinic who came with uh, ridiculous pain, basically. So uh, L5 S1 had some neurology, sort of barn door, really in my mind, and had some physiotherapy. hadn't really responded. Was just getting progressively worse as time went on. And so we had a discussion around, you know, what do you want to do next? And she she, she you know, she felt that she needed to have something done about it. So I sent her for a scan, expecting, fully expecting it to come back with a prolapse disc, didn't come back with anything on the scan. So I was like, okay, so she's got neurology, this is getting worse, what's causing that? And at that time, I couldn't request an MRI of the pelvis, so we weren't—we just weren't allowed to do that. So, so I had to send her to see the consultant. And again, at that time, there were long waits for these patients to be seen. And by the time she got to see the consultant, which was around three or four months later, she had a tumour in her buttock the size of a melon. And the consequence of that was that she had to have a hindquarter amputation. So, Pretty devastating for the patient, and I think, you know, I felt quite devastated thinking, "Gosh, you know, I failed this patient." Essentially, you know, you know, could I have done something better or quicker? And I I know, on reflection, you know, discussing that case with the oncologist, with oncologists and radiologists, and the rheumatologist, it was that actually probably the time when I saw her, that tumor was probably the size of a pea. So I probably wouldn't have been able to pick it up. But nonetheless, it you know was really quite devastating, and I can remember regaling this story to a consultant physiotherapist at the time and she said the first thing she said to me was Well of course I've never missed a serious pathology and I think in a nanosecond I thought, wow, you're brilliant, I want to be like you. And in the next you know breath I thought, you know what? How do you know that? How do you know that you've not missed anything? And and I think, you know, we will miss serious pathology. It's because of the nature of it. You know, it masquerades, you know, it responds to treatment. And 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 that's the nature of the beast. So it is about sort of raising that awareness to see if we can pick up these patients quicker. I think. So that's why I've become interested.
0: Yeah. On oh, and on that um, note, what what is the the instance of? Uh,
1: yeah, um, a good question. Incidents of red red flag, serious oh yeah, pathology. Of serious yeah. pathology. So so if you look at the literature, it says around one percent in primary care. Um, and I and I don't believe that that's true. I think I think. We've done a quick and dirty look at our data um, within the service I work in, and we reckon it's between two and three uh, percent. And I know other other services reporting higher. Mm. I think that's going to that is going to change anyway. You know, if you think about um, serious pathology generally, it's on it's on the increase in the sense that we patients are. Responding really well to primary cancers, particularly you know, so things like breast and prostate cancer. The treatment's brilliant, but what that means is there's 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 a chance that these patients will go on to metastasize, and, and you know that those are the patients we're going to see coming through the service. So, so I think it was it, that could be a really nice piece of work to look at. Actually, what what are the percentages? And and if we think about that in terms of what's meaningful for you as a clinician, one percent, one in hundred. 2%, 1 in 50, you know, so so the numbers aren't, you know, it's not rare, mm-hmm. you know, if you see, I don't know, 50 patients a month, you know, that's that's one of those patients you're, you're going to pick up, so we need to be a bit more mindful of that, I think.
0: Yeah, so for those listeners out there that, that are aware that you're a consultant role and yeah. thinking this is this is something that you're seeing and, and they're not seeing, yeah. that 1% Statistically, if they're seeing 20 new patients uh, a week and mm. uh, um, one in 50 patients, yeah,
1: so it's uh, one a month for them essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, hopefully, that flicks a switch in, in, yeah. in the listeners' minds. Um, can, can you um uh introduce yourself a little bit about your role for yeah. those who don't know yeah, who sure. you are and what you do? Sure,
1: so I'm a consultant physiotherapist, um, I specialize in, in spinal conditions, I work for. The Sussex MSK Partnership. Uh, so we provide services across um, for MSKs for all MSK conditions, from GP referral right through to post surgery. Um, I also am the vice president of IFONT, which is the International Federation of Orthopedic Manipulative Physical Therapists.
0: So we're going to talk today about um, red flags, but if we can particularly um, discuss metastatic bone disease and, yeah. and maybe we'll leave for a, a later podcast um, some other pathology that I know you're looking at and yeah. uh, the work you've done behind uh, cordial um syndrome but if we if we shine a light uh, more on uh, metastatic bone disease for, mm-hmm. for now I'm start off with a paper that um, you may well have seen last month that came out in the um, BJSM from America from um, North Carolina the uh, Duke uh, University uh, Chad Cook who who brought up a a statement and uh, one of the subheadings I want to draw your attention to welcome your opinion was red flag symptoms neither rule out nor identify serious pathology so if you could um, discuss that and the the evidence around red flags yeah
1: sure so so this is a really really good paper and if you haven't read it then I think it's a really good read Um, it's not really telling us anything that we don't already know I think you know red flags are really problematic for us as clinicians you know we've traditionally used them to try and identify or screen for, for red flags but chad cook talks about you know actually you know we don't screen patients we you know we're managing patients who come through the door with some of those symptoms which is absolutely right um, but you know if you think about the red flags themselves i think they they're just a list of items that you have to decide what to do with so you know it could just you know the list is there's often 10 or 11 common Red flags, uh, including things like past history cancer, night pain, night sweats, uh, you know, fever. So, you know, raft of things that you have to then decide, what am I going to do with that? And for Hagen et al., this year, again, so there's been a flurry of papers actually this year um, around red flags, and, and they're all saying the same thing. There's no consensus around what those red flags should be for which pathology, so, you know, which ones do we use for which there's no sort of standard uh, definition. So everyone's using them a different way. And they're all suggesting, you know, when you should react to, to a red flag or not. So, so I think there are real issues around, you know, what's, you know how do we use them? And, and it really has been left to, to clinicians devices to do that. And, you know, I think we need to, a better direction on that. Um, and in particular, what they talk about is we shouldn't be using one red flag, as as a a reason to to investigate somebody further and I completely agree with this and Chad talks about this as well you know you know and and classically lots of people think someone comes through the door and they've got a past history of cancer you know and that's the that's the reason that they should scan somebody and I think Underwood talks about you know this is that's a really blunt instrument you shouldn't just use you know past history of cancer because you need to understand what that cancer is and uh, you know how long they've had those cancers so so it's and, and you know also what I do know is that some services and this is happening nationally are doing that 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 patient comes in with a past tissue cancer they scan them mm. and you know for the patient it's it's worrying it's unnecessary in lots of cases and and also it's, it's cost prohibitive And, you know, you and I know that if we send someone for a scan, it's going to come back with a raft of things on it that are completely irrelevant. So so I think we have to be more measured about that. We have to really think about why are we sending that patient for for that scan. And so I suppose that that kind of links in with the work that I've looked at in in terms of metastatic bone disease. Because if you think about um, cancers, we know that there there are a number of cancers that actually will metastasize, so I have an affinity to bone, have an affinity to the spine, so we're talking about uh, breast cancer, prostate and lungs specifically, those are the top three that are likely to metastasize. so so for me if someone comes in with a past history of cancer of, of breast, I'm thinking okay my index of suspicion is, is higher um, and my threshold to scan would be lower, but that wouldn't be the reason to scan them, so it would, be, it would just make me sit up a little bit, what I'd want to know is what type of cancer they had, you know, what kind, type of breast cancer. So what's their relative risk of actually going on to develop metastases? Because in breast cancer particularly, you're looking at about 30% more metastasise. And the common site is, is, is the spine and bone, essentially. So, so we need to be really aware of that. Um, so if you have someone who comes in with a past history of ovarian cancer the likelihood of that metastasizing is very, very low. So so our thresholds should should really be uh, related to that relative risk. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're talking about um, the um, metastasizing to the spine, the, the, uh, I understand there's 70% of uh, the likelihood, is that's going to be thoracic spine. Yeah, so again, when absolutely. you're talking about raising that index of suspicion,
1: yeah.
0: um, when the spine... Um, uh, and and the type of cancer, also timeframes of cancer, as in when really important. diagnosed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: any on that note, is there any others that you could that are raising your index of suspicion that you could?
1: Yeah. So so on? just before we go onto that though, just thinking about what you said about you know thoracic spine is the most common place for it to 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 land. I think what we also have to be careful of is is that. It might be in the thoracic spine, but actually the sensory level isn't there. So, so actually, what you're getting is low back pain. So, it's really important if you're suspicious that it's metastasized that actually you do a full spine because you could miss it if you just do lumbar spine. So, so it's really critical that we, you know, we get that bit right. Even if it's seventy percent in the in the thoracic, you know, it could produce low back pain. So, you could miss it if you don't do that.
0: Yeah, really good point. The importance yeah. of a false mm. MRI. Otherwise, yeah, you get a yeah. get a false negative.
1: Yeah. So, so what else? What else would trigger me to, to send this patient? You know, so not just the past history of cancer. So, um,
0: or even possibly if you could uh, link that in with the case study.
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That. That. Yeah. Fine. So. So I can I can link it into to a case study. I think. Um, the I saw a lady who had had a previous history of breast cancer two years previously um, she'd had uh, she'd had a mastectomy and she'd had some chemo and radiotherapy at the time but it, it, in all in all purposes you know she was cured from breast cancer if you like and she she came to me uh, probably two years later she'd been to see the physio she'd, she'd moved this pot in the garden and she got back pain and you know very mechanical cause just felt that this pain was like, well, oh, you know, really quite significant. Saw the physio, settled down. You know, as we know, you know, treatment can make a difference. Um, because we also know that with cancers, that they don't have a linear progression, so they wax and wane. So you could be catching this patient when it's in that phase, so that actually they're getting better. So we kind of get reassured by that a little bit. So she had some physio, did that, and then she did something else, similar thing. She had a mechanical reaction to, you know, doing something, lifting something else. But this time she started to get band- what, band-like pain around her stomach, which is not particularly usual for, for normal back pain. But she also reported some sensations in her legs that she couldn't really describe. She just said, my legs just don't feel like they're my legs. I can't, I, not particularly painful, just, just didn't feel right. And I can remember <clears throat> I'd been to I think it, after I saw this lady I went to um, listen to Sue Greenhouse Dr Sue Greenhouse who's done who have done a lot of work with her around called Aquina. Um and she was describing someone exactly like that um, who'd got metastatic spinal cord compression I thought I've just seen that patient mm-hmm. and this lady didn't have metastatic spinal cord compression but she had she was almost impending so she got metastases in her spine so she she's one of those patients that um, actually fit into this kind of uh, scenario where you've got you've got a patient with past history of breast cancer she's got some other weird things going on essentially um, and, but she's also um, she's what am I trying to say? She, she, she fits into that category where she was at risk of having metastases within the first two to five years of, of that that cancer. So the, there's a group that's going to do that's going to get that, but there's also a group that may not develop these symptoms until 10, 15 years later. And that, that's that's why it's so problematic for us. You know, who are those people? Which ones are going to develop later on? Which ones are going to develop early on? We'd, you won't always know that. The patient can't tell you always... Which which cancer they've had, but they'll know whether it's been aggressive or not because of the because of the treatment they've had, lymph node removal. So those kind of things are going to really help you know us describe that really or help us identify that.
0: Um, could you give an example to listeners of um, a type of cancer that uh, presents typically metastasizes at a late stage, outside of that five year mark? So often the lower index is suspicion, yeah. but things that still have a higher index yeah, it if it was a particular yeah. cancer. Yeah. Could you?
1: Yeah. So so again, uh, you know, we're talking about the ones that are, have an affinity to spine. So we're talking about breast, prostate, and lung. But um, unless you understand and you know which ones are, you know, the, the cancer themselves, and so if you've got oestrogen um, receptor negative, it's more likely to, to metastasize in the first two years. Right whereas though the estrogen receptor positive will relapse 10 years or more okay. Yeah. so and and the difficulty is we don't you know as i say patients don't always know that information yeah,
0: yeah that's the yeah. challenge
1: it is a challenge but but i guess you know if you've got someone who's coming in who's had you know breast cancer 10 years ago it's always going to be it should always raise your index of suspicion yeah and i think you know, the problem is it's it goes off the radar it goes off the radar of gps clinicians, patients, the patients, you know, are, are not expecting that, you yeah. know, so th- so in some respects they're not aware that that's a possibility.
0: Um, I, I think you raised a really good point there, um, going back to, to the, not to drop your index of suspicion because symptoms are improving, oh. that's something that can, can yeah, lead can us down happen. the wrong path, a bit, yeah. put us on the yeah. back foot thinking, the, the hypothesis, mm. uh, Muscusky's hypothesis is, has been now you know
1: nailed yeah nailed because they're <laughs> yeah. improving
0: we're winning yeah. with this and actually as you say ebbs and yeah. flows and it could you just see them on an improvement scale whether you'd had any treatment
1: yeah and and more. I you know that's really important I think you know we we we're on this kind of fine line aren't we really because we we're, we're talking about let's not investigate everybody you know yeah. with a past issue of cancer but you know well, how do we deal with the ones that potentially could rock into that so so it's really that it's a really fine line I think Um, so we need we need to really think about you know how do how do we make sure that we keep hold of those patients in a way so so I would probably be inclined to look at this patient think well okay currently it looks fairly mechanical yes I've got some things that I'm just in the back of my head thinking I just need to keep an eye on that and I would make sure I have a safety net so and and it's okay to watch and wait you know again Chad Cook alludes to this I think that's you know very sensible this is what we advocate all the time is you can sit and wait and watch what happens with this patient. You know, things change. Things do change. Um, but it's okay to watch and wait. You know, a few weeks, just seeing how it, how, how it plays out is, is absolutely fine, and we should do that.
0: Yeah, I think that would be reassuring for, for yeah. some of our listeners that feel that they need to action yeah. something Absol- straight away. Yeah, absolutely. When it's
1: yeah. So just, not Yeah, just watch. And, you know, uh, so I... Some of the... Um, just thinking about relating that to cases, really, and, and just where we, we I think we're falling down some pitfalls you know we're having falling down the same pothole over and over again so i can think of three cases between 2008 and 2016 and these are cases that myself and Sue Greenhouse and Chris Mercer have discussed quite a lot is that we you know these patients have come with a past history of cancer the physios have seen this patient they've identified there's no red flags at that at that time you know except for this past history of cancer but the patient is changing Throughout the whole scenario, they start to change. Things just subtly change, like their, their ability to walk is, is less. They start limping a bit more. There's there's just subtle signs that, that aren't picked up. And sometimes these patients are transferred to other... Therapists, and that's where one of the problems comes is that they get a transfer to somebody else and this patient the physio is saying there's no red flags mm. so instead of really checking that they just take that for granted or they're reassured there's no red flags yeah, you know yeah. and, and I think we have to be really mindful of that as well you know you need to keep checking you yeah. need to keep watching and seeing what's happening you know and we do get reassured you know we get reassured by the advanced practitioner being, seeing them and they sent to physio but we shouldn't be reassured. Yeah. You know, I've had patients who have gone to see the oncologist you know, two weeks previously and got, the oncologist said, yeah, it's all fine. And they've got raging metastases. So, you know, we all take a part in this. We all play a part, big part in it.
0: That's a good point, yeah. So no no red flags at that point in time doesn't no. mean they've cleared it for that incidence that, that might be going on for yeah. several months. Um so do you, you really nicely touched on uh, several things a raise your index of suspicion mm. and, and someone reporting there off their feet or, or the band like pain and so not just screening everyone with a, a, a past history of cancer because you, you identified the reasons why that's, that's not effective for the patient or cost effective mm. um, the, the, the type of cancer the, 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 um, uh, the area of pain what, what, is there anything else you wanted to add on to that raises the index of suspicion there's, there's, there's certain things that would be seen as red flags or raising index suspicion, things like weight loss, things yeah, sure. like night pain, sure. but, yeah. but they're really the late stage. Yeah, but by, by that time, we've hopefully have identified by the time they're presented with so. those symptoms. Mm. Um, yeah. So, if we're waiting for those to raise our index of suspicion, that could the, the pendulum could swing the other way.
1: Yeah, so so I so I looked at, uh, as you know, I, I looked um into the literature looking at seeing if we could pick up some early signs or detect some early signs of metastases specifically Um, and it's it's really interesting the literature says it's really important that we that we identify these patients early because actually they do better we know that if if you've got let's say you've got metastases but you've got one one isolated area of metastases then patients respond very well to medication they do really well if that metastases is widespread and includes a number of organs the prognosis A is very poor and they don't tolerate treatment so the quality of life is really you know it's really poor so we can impact massively if we can pick these patients up early yeah so so what do those early signs look like and you know as we as we said the problem is things like weight loss and fever and night pain all of those things you know describe the late stages yeah but that's what the literature gives us it talks about pain a lot um, one of one of the papers well quite a lot of the papers talk about ominous night pain and you know again it's about what does that night pain what what's ominous night pain um, to me it's you know a patient who's who can't lie flat who can't lie in the bed has to sleep sitting upright walks the floors at night you know all those kind of things would indicate that that's pretty ominous really you know we know that people with back pain 90% of people with back pain have night pain so it's putting it into that context of what's, what's relevant to that yeah but 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 looking at the literature, there isn't. That's the that's what's problematic. There isn't really anything that describes the the early signs. So we know it's important, but no one no one's really you know found what those are. Um, you know I've talked about this band-like pain. Well, that could be an early sign, but it's not been validated. The legs you know feeling a bit strange could also be, but it's been used in the context of metastatic spinal cord compression, which is your late stage. In the disease, where you know, actually, that's the worst case scenario. These patients essentially that's when you know that's the most terrible thing for them because they, their quality of life is going to be disrupted, they're potentially going to be paralyzed. You know, there's you know, that's not where we want to be. We want no. to be at the other end of that scale, but we don't know what that looks like, particularly. So, we you know, we need, we need to look at it, we absolutely need to look at those,
0: yeah. And, um, and then what 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 are we as a profession physiologist what, what are we doing well at the moment what what areas can we yeah. celebrate a bit
1: so so I, there's lots of celebration you know I, it sounds like I you know it sounds a bit terrible doesn't it but um you know this is really important i think you know for everybody who's who's sitting in any kind of service that, that's presented with a patient who's potentially got back pain then you know there is a risk that they could have something nasty going on. So it is about us identifying and recognizing those signs. And, and I think as, as physios, we are good at that. We know when things don't look right. We absolutely know that. And we and we're very good at identifying that and then being able to actually deal with those patients. You yeah. know, I think previously, you know, systems are clunky about how do you get this patient sorted out. And I think our relationships with GPs and oncologists and orthopedic surgeons oh it's so good that actually we we do get the patients to the right place you know very quickly and i think we we should celebrate that for sure you know yeah. we, we do do a good job i think it's just you know we we, i think we just need to recognize that patients do change and we just need to have that you know suspicion in our in our minds really
0: yeah and um on, on that side uh, uh, pathways are place and, and and the success of those pathways to so the, the two-week rule and, and yeah statistically are we getting success from that from identification to that early management that we, we're trying to aspire to
1: well you know that it's a difficult question to answer really um we as physios at the currently and I, this may not be nationally but certainly within the area that that you and I work is we don't have access to two-week rule or to um, cancer of unknown primary uh, cancers. So so actually, we're dependent slightly on the GP to, to actually unravel some of that and to deal with that. But, but the mechanisms are there. They're absolutely there. And, you know, we have access to lots of services that, that we can have that discussion with and, you know, trigger some of those things. So it's those relationships that are really important, those networks that, that we've built are really key and it's, it is knowing your pathways. That's, you know, incredibly important.
0: Yeah. Um, and on that note, what, what advice would you give um, for for the clinicians listening um, uh, with regard to the red flags that um, perhaps we could be doing better? And, and how would, would this differ between the on-the-ground physios that are, <clears throat> that are, that are treating patients can, compared to the advanced practitioner roles that are uh, yeah. in a diagnostic role?
1: Yeah. So I, I don't think there's any difference between an advanced practitioner and, and a physiotherapist who's seeing, you know, a patient on the front line. You know, if you look at what's happening within the UK, we're, we're going to self-referral. So patients are bypassing GPs, um, you know, we're taking on these patients with no other screening that's that's occurred by the GP, so so actually we're going to have to be even better at what we're doing. We can do better. We can absolutely do better. Um, but uh, you, know, my advice would be, you do you know don't don't scan somebody or think someone needs investigating just because they got a past issue of cancer. That would be my first thing. Yeah. The second thing would be, you know, red flags as they exist are they are problematic you know we've talked about that but actually you shouldn't we shouldn't throw them out either you know they they have value and all the literature says we need to look at combinations of red flags and i think as clinicians that's exactly what you do do you know we don't just take something in isolation we we tend to put that picture together and we think that's not right that doesn't look right that doesn't really fit so we're very good at that clinically reasoning and I, you know look at that and look at the the patient and just, you know, listen to what the patient tells you. They they often have that answer, I think, you know, and be careful about dismissing someone's, what I would describe as disproportionate distress. You know, we have patients who are highly anxious, but it's that, it's a bit more than that. It's, they and when you see it you'll know what I'm talking about and i think it's difficult when you haven't seen it but but i can you know i can remember or i can st- still see these patients who've sat in front of me who who appear like rabbits in headlights because they they know that something's not right yeah and it's kind of unraveling that a bit and and then putting all the other bits of the picture together and and the, probably the third thing i would say is that we need you need to just think about safety netting you know don't just think Oh my god! I've got to get this patient sorted and scanned and do all these things, because that's not that's not helpful either. So sit and wait. If you if you think well, I'm not sure. Sit and wait. Watch what goes on. Safety net them.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really uh, good point that not to be complacent. That the role yeah. as a physio, you're not. It's not something these advanced practitioners are seeing, no. and 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 not the the band fives yeah. and six. Uh, and in fact, they're seeing, um, you know new patients coming in, and statistically, if we're going back to that, yeah. 1%, possibly 2%, that's 101 in 50, they're, they're seeing them knocking at the door yeah. and, um, yeah, and identifying yeah.
1: them. And, and also, you know, I think advanced practitioners are sending patients to see, be seen by physios. Physios should not be reassured that the advanced practitioner has picked it up. Yeah. You know, there is a chance that they haven't, so we just need to keep that awareness really
0: you also made a, a comment there that the the patient often has mm. the answers we can learn a lot from the patients do you mm. think that's something we need to explore more yeah. in the, the the quest for identifying these yeah. red flags and and bringing in mm. patients to to inform us better
1: definitely um, I, I think the patient's got the answer actually I, I think you know that there's a potential answer from the patient and that's not been explored I think that's one of the things I'm really interested in, and hope to do some research around that. So, we need to ask those patients, you know, what triggered them to to, to seek help, because you know, we don't know. You know, it could be um, that patients specifically there's something that happens, or they have a sensation or feeling, or some some kind of symptom that is the early sign of metastases and that's, that's really simplistic but you know essentially i think we need to talk to patients about why and what causes them to, to seek help
0: mm-hmm. and
1: and you know the, the, that that work has been done in primary cancers but not in not in metastases and i think it's really critical
0: and uh, is there any um, as we start rounding things up is there is there any other future direction of of research that you can yeah. let our listeners
1: okay so about? so um I'm involved um, in a piece of work around red flies because, again, you know, we're really keen that you know I th- we we need to use red flies, but we need to use them in the context of of the pathologies we're looking at, and and it currently does, we, that's not happening. So we've been, um, I say we. There's an international group of clinicians that and researchers have been have got together. Uh, on the back of um, iFont uh, asking us to do some work around looking at red flags and, and looking at consensus around red flags, so um, we what we're planning to do is to do something similar to the um, work done by uh, Roger Kerry around the artery dysfunction. Yeah. So it's looking at a framework for clinicians with regards to red flags. So, so what we're hoping is that we can make the red flags more meaningful. You know, so if, if, as we've been talking about this a lot, past issue of cancer, you know, what does that really mean? Can we, can we be more specific about which cancers we need to be concerned about? You know, and at what point should, you know, the relative risk and all... So make it really kind of useful for the clinician so it's more meaningful. So that's, that's at the moment, that's we're in the process of doing that. Um, we're on phase one, so we're looking at systematic reviews. We know we're not going to probably pick up anything different to what we've got already, but we're looking at fracture malignancy cordaquina and infection so we we should have frameworks for all of those four areas um and then once we've looked at the 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 evidence we'll then look at a consensus around which red flags fit to each of those categories um so that's that's where we're heading we're a bit of a way off but i think it's going to be a really helpful piece of work yeah absolutely. you know it'll 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 do what Chad Cook's talking about, you know, make it, you know, more meaningful in a sense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and allow the clinician to deconstruct those red flags into yeah. not just a broad brush, but when yeah. it raises the index of suspicion. Yeah. And, and when...
1: Yeah, when and, and so it's more standardised, you know, it, you know, will it describe what that really means. So, you know, you're not having to make it up in your head what you think that should be.
0: Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, it sounds very exciting, and, and it'll be great to get you on the podcast. Talk about the fr- those other frameworks yeah. that you, you discussed as well. Um, just to wrap up, is is there anywhere so our listeners can find more information um, from your output? Uh, your your recent article, which was uh, titled uh, "Which Red Flags AD Early Detection of Metastatic Bone Disease uh, in Back Pain," we'll put a link to that on the, in okay. the in the podcast notes. But any anywhere else that uh, people can find more information about you and the and, and the studies you do? Um, <clears throat>
1: well, there's a question. um and I think some some of the stuff we've done around uh, called equineus syndrome is, is yeah. probably out there. I think it's it's there's a YouTube clip on that. Yeah. Um, I know that we've got some some of the information on the MACP website, haven't we? For that, yeah. um, I think that's probably all we've got at the moment. But yeah. and I'm you know I'm happy for anyone to contact me if they wish to to. Chat through stuff. I'm very happy to do that. Yeah,
0: Likewise. excellent, and and, uh, and the um, course that you do as well. Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. The Ripley courses, yes, which yeah. got a great reputation.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, which we we'll, we we'll put a put a link to as, as Fantastic. well. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. So you know, I, that's been that's been really helpful. I think, and I think, you know, that's the course I've done with Chris Mercer and Sue Greenhouse, and yeah. and, you know, there's a wealth of information and expertise in that and knowledge. I think, and I think we work really well together because we just, you know we can really link some of those things together for for people and lots of cases, case studies. Yeah, it's good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and on my own note, I have have done that course and I, I, I was talking to someone on the course when I did it and it was their third time. Really? The so they had repeated that <laughs> oh and, and updated it because they felt that it was it okay. was so good to take take that information in, which All I right. think was a good good uh, good advert for All for right. the course. <laughs> so it's so at the forefront of their mind, yeah. Uh, yeah and also, uh, I'd reinforce that you. you're very generous on Twitter with sharing information as well. So yeah, um, yeah. people can find you on on Twitter. What's your handle for those that are Twitter savvy?
1: Yeah. So at Laura, from you can be. Yeah.
0: Uh, perfect. All right, I'd like to finish off. Thank you very much for your time today, and hopefully, see you in the future for uh, yeah. chat around the the other frameworks.
1: Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure.